You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Welcome to Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday here uh, all over the world and here at Sun Grove Church. And we're so grateful for Jesus in our lives. If you think about it, today is a pretty intense day. How many of you in here love intense experiences? I'll be honest, you like them, like, you know, you get your adrenaline going, you like that kind of thing. Well, one of my favorite stories to tell is uh, a number of years ago, I was on a youth staff working with teenagers, and we took a bunch up to Big Bear, California, and up at Big Bear, California, they have this thing called the Alpine Slide. How many of you are familiar with what an Alpine Slide is? You know what one of these is? Anybody you've been on these? Okay, now, this is a big cement trench that's cut into the middle of the mountain, and you sit on a little teeny cart, and there's one handle. That handle can go forward, and it takes the brake off, or you can pull back, and it puts the brake on. And the idea is you're timed. You get a time trial as you're going down, and you keep trying to beat your time. Well, the youth staff, particularly the guys in this case, started getting really competitive. And we would outdo each other and get better times, and we're we're walking that fine line of risk Because if you go too fast, you could just be going around a corner and just flip out, literally, of the whole channel and, like, roll on the ground and, I don't know, maybe get run over by the cart behind you. But it's a real fine line, and and so we're just edging it. We're just saying, hey, we're being real careful. What can we do? And then, of course, we get more and more risky, right? And the danger is that these are not easy to drive. Like, you've got to be pretty careful because if your knees or your elbows or your hand rub up against the alpine slide, it will give you a burn. It'll take all the skin off and give you basically a burn. I mean, it's like getting drugged by a car. And so it's not a good thing. So you have this natural born fear in you that you've got to fly really well. And and not everybody flies well. I'm sure this guy flies pretty well. Here's a picture of Harrison Ford and, you know, Han Solo, probably no problem, right? Millennial Falcon, just not a problem. But for me or for other people, you got to be careful because if you get arrogant and you're flying down this thing, you can wipe out and actually get some pretty serious injuries. I'm sure when this guy woke up in the morning, he didn't think he was going to go home like this, right? He's like, I'm buff, I'm cool, I'm a male, the testosterone's going huge, and yeah, look at him. Look what happened to him, right? But we're getting competitive, and I'm flying down this thing, so I think, okay, this is it. I'm going to do the best run ever. And uh, at the time, I was like, I, I have, like, the whole course memorized. It's like in a video game when you have the map in your head already. You just got it dialed in. You know what you need to do at every turn. You can visualize it. And so I go, and I just lean that thing forward, and I think, no brakes. No brakes the whole way, right? So I am just pedal to the metal. That handle is forward, and I take off, and I'm flying down, and I'm just doing great. I've just got it. I'm doing super as I'm going down. The halfway time, I'm smoked my other times. I'm way ahead. I'm like, this is awesome. And my adrenaline's up. I think I'm having so much fun. I'm being real careful. And as you're going, there's this one section that, like, the trench is dug into the hill. It's not above ground. It's actually in the ground. And so ground level's right next to you. And as I'm flying through this section, I notice out of my peripheral vision that there's a little wasp flying this way and that we're going to collide. And so I try to be like, okay, be cool. It just bounce off, right? But no, he didn't bounce off. He went right here and went down my shirt. And I feel it go down, and then he stings me. He doesn't like getting caught, right? What is this? He just starts stinging me. And I panic like, ah, I'm going to die, right? I start to like wipe out on the cart like my elbow hits, my knee hits. I'm losing control. And so I think the only thing I could do, this thing is stinging me. So I just start beating 
the wasp in my shirt as I'm driving down. Like, it's, and it's just, you know, I'm getting stung and I'm just trying to kill this thing. It's just desperation. My adrenaline's through the roof. I get down at the end. I'm sure I had the greatest of all times ever. I didn't care. I threw my cart to the side. I go in the bathroom. I pull up my shirt and there's just wasp paste all over yeah, it was disgusting. I stung like four times. They're hurting. I've scraped my elbows, my knees, my hand. I, I'm just, you know, like I have lost all control. Have you ever lost control? I have lost all control. I don't even care. I put my shirt back down. I'm walking like this. I go to the first aid place. You know it's bad when they have the first aid place right there. <laughs> this is not an unusual experience. But in that moment, you just think like, I've got this. I've got this. And next thing you know, you just lose all control. How many of you are control freaks in here? Anybody else control freak in here? Okay, we got some. How many of you like to have control in your life somewhere? Like, you're like, I need some. I don't have to be a control freak, but I need some. Right. We like being in control, but we all have those dreaded moments when we lose control. Right? You thought you had it, and then you have to almost laugh at yourself like, we have lost control. You know, everything seems out of control. Uh, you might be a teacher, and you might be, like, having a great morning in the classroom, and then all of a sudden, you don't know what happened, but you take a laugh at yourself, and you look, and you're like, I don't know what happened. But somewhere in the last few minutes, I have clearly lost control. And you got to begin to think about, how do I regain the control of the classroom, right? When my dad was in the hospital with cancer, there came the moment as pancreatic cancer began to take his life that, that he would lose all control. He couldn't make it from the bed to the bathroom anymore. And, and he just said, you know, you know you've lost all dignity when you're laying on the ground and you can't move anywhere and you can't control your bowels. And he just said, you know, listen, there's these times where my dad, by the way, was a high-powered attorney. And he's just almost laughing at himself like, I have clearly lost all control. The cancer has taken it from me. And, and maybe for you, you just think, you think of our world and our world is out of control. And you think, well, you think of politics and you're like, they're just out of control. There aren't checks and balances, which there are. But we begin to look and go, it seems crazy what's going on out there. And you think, maybe all that's out of control. You feel like the entire world is out of control. You see horrible experiences in our country or in other countries and you think the world is out of control. Maybe for you, your health diagnosis has taken control of your life. The doctor tells you what test you're going to have, when you're going to have it, where you're going to go, and your life got hijacked by a health diagnosis, and you have lost control. Maybe for you, you've lost a valued relationship, and that was taken out of your control. No matter your efforts to regain that, to bring that person back, to bring them back to life, or to bring them back into your life, you've lost control. Maybe for some of you, it's a job loss, a loss of employment or your status. For some of you, maybe it's just simply this, that just trying to get here today, as you were driving over, your whole family just freaked out. And you're like, what happened? I'm just trying to get to church on Easter morning, and we have absolutely lost control. It wouldn't be unusual for that kind of experience to happen, would it? Well, here's why you need this sermon. When there is nothing redeemable in your circumstances, we begin to question everything. Where is it? Where's my security? Where's my safety when things seem out of control? We begin to question those kind of things. Here's an idea, and I want you to catch it. Control is driven by fear. And fear's core is a loss of security. So why do you get more controlling? Because you're afraid. Well, what are you afraid of? You're afraid that things that you think make you or me secure are gone. So we become more controlling because we think we are losing security. So in order to make myself feel more secure, I'm going to try to control more. 
That's how fear operates. So the real question that we begin to ask is this. How can I be assured that God is actually good in a world that seems out of control, in circumstances that seem out of control, when difficult things happen to good people? I mean, after all, even Jesus lost control of the circumstances and the events surrounding his, his life, his arrest, his crucifixion, didn't he? Well, today I want to walk through 11 proofs with you that God was absolutely in control of the events that surrounded his life, his arrest, his death, and his resurrection from the grave. Will you take your outline out of your program? You're going to need that here today. So today I want to take you on a journey through the events of Jesus' betrayal, through the events of his crucifixion and his resurrection. I want you to look at it through an entirely new lens. And I want you to closely look at the text to see, did God or did God not have control of the events that surrounded him? Number one on your outline, Jesus told Judas when to go betray him. Now Judas is one of the 12 disciples, and they're at the Last Supper. They're at this time, this gathering together, and it was at that time that Jesus knew that Judas was out to betray him and told him when to go. In fact, the scriptures describe it this way in John 13, verse 27. As soon as G Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told them, what you are about to do, do quickly. In other words, don't, don't wait, don't take time. Do what you're going to do, what you intended to do, do it right now. And it's interesting because Judas had seen kind of signs of the times. He had seen the highs and the lows, and he was getting nervous about his future. So he said, i got to find a way out to be secure. I'm afraid. And so what I'm going to do is I think the wheels are coming off. I'm going to betray Jesus, and I'm going to ensure some security for myself. And so he agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In that day, that's an immense amount of money. And so he said, I'm going to pad my pockets. I'm going to have an escape plan but I'm going to do it at the expense of Jesus because I don't like what's going on here. So they're at the Last Supper. They're at this time where they're dipping the bread and later they would have the cup together, the juice. And it's so interesting to me that what was normal is they would tear off pieces of bread. They would all dip into the same bowl, the, the things that you would put on the bread and you would eat those things. And Jesus said, one of you who's dipped into that, in the bread, into the cup with me is going to betray me. And the reason no one knew who that was because they were all dipping. They would double dip, it's just the way it works, sorry. But that's what they would be doing at that time. It was very Jewish custom, it still continues today. And so they would, they would just dip into that and they'd eat the bread, they'd tear off another piece so they weren't double dipping. But they would, you know, they would take and just put out the condiments and they would all do that. And, and Judas had partaken of the bread. But God did not let him partake of the cup that we would later realize symbolizes his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That he instead, out of fear, said, I'm going to go betray Jesus. Well, Jesus controlled the timing. He said, right now, get up, you leave this meal, you go do, do what you're going to do quickly. And Judas left in that moment. Second thing, Jesus predicted Peter's denial. As Jesus told the disciples, hey, one of you is going to betray me, Peter's like, I never will. And so he's adamant about it. I'm with you to the end, through thick and thin, I'll never leave you, Jesus. And Jesus says this to Peter. He says in Mark 14, 30, Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. So what happens? After Jesus gets arrested, the disciples flee, but Peter follows along at a distance. 
And Jesus is being tried in the middle of the night through a couple different mock trials, if you will. They were a mockery of the Jewish legal system. And Jesus is in this experience, but at one point he's being held outside in a courtyard. And three times, Peter is confronted by different people who said, hey, you know him. You're one of the disciples, aren't you? Aren't you one of the Galileans who was with Jesus? And three times he denies, I don't even know the man. He curses. He makes a big deal that he doesn't even know him because he's afraid. And so he puts this stone of security, he thinks, by denying the truth in front of himself. And then he sees Jesus across that courtyard. The rooster crows. Their eyes meet. And the scriptures say that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Well, Jesus knew that that would happen. He predicted it would happen. So late Thursday night until Friday morning before the alarm clock, the rooster makes his noise. Peter denies knowing Christ three times. Jesus knew that it was going to happen before it happened. Number three, Jesus submitted his human desires to his divine mission. He knew that he was come from God. He is God, become flesh on earth, that he's lived this perfect life, but now he's going to take the sins of the world upon himself. And to all who would believe in his sacrifice on the cross, he'll offer them eternal life. Offer them the forgiveness of their sins. But to go through that, he knew what would happen to him. That he would be beaten. He would be mocked. He would be whipped. He would have a crown of thorns pressed on his head. He'd be crucified. He would go where he didn't want to go. He knew those things were going to happen to him. And in his humanity, the scriptures say that he was under the most intense distress that a person can be under. That he was incredibly distressed in spirit, emotionally, also physically under immense distress. So they leave this meal. They go across the valley onto this garden area called the Garden of Gethsemane. And while there, you can sit there and see all the walls of Jerusalem. It's a beautiful area, but it, it's a private area. And so they go, they go to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And while they're there, Jesus asks his disciples to watch and pray. And Jesus begins to deal with his fears. Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. And he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What's the cup he's talking about? He's saying, I'm going to have to drink the cup of suffering. I'm going to have to go through the experience of suffering to accomplish the will of the father. But he's saying, listen, if there's any other way, any other way we could have that end result, but I don't have to suffer. My flesh, my emotions, I'm under incredible duress because I know what I've got to go through. He goes on and says in verse 40, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father... If it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, listen to his statement, may your will be done. Jesus has the very natural reaction of fear. He has a natural reaction in our flesh of the loss of security. And that thing is like a massive weight on him. But we begin to see Jesus in the garden dealing with that as a human being and as God. And we begin to watch him have to deal with it. And we see Jesus master his emotions. So often our fears master us, our emotions master us, but we begin to see Jesus experience all that like you or I would, but he masters his emotions in the garden, and it prepares him with a unique strength for what lies ahead. 
Number four, Jesus says Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. It is simply translated I am. So when they want to know, hey God, who are you? What's the personal name of God? God revealed himself as I am. That's who he is. Now we translate it in an English Bible to I am he because we think English readers wouldn't understand if Jesus just said I am. But in the Greek, in the actual version, there's no I am he. It's just simply I am. Got that point, you know, complete. That's all God's got to say. Who are you? I am. End of story. Okay, that's God. It's his personal name. And so they come to arrest Jesus. Peter, uh, uh, Judas has betrayed Jesus, and they've walked across from the city with some soldiers. These soldiers are not Roman soldiers. These soldiers are part of the guard that would be assigned to the religious leaders of the day. There was religious leaders, and they had power, and they had authority, and they had soldiers. And so they come with their soldiers. Judas is leading them, and they come to betray Jesus. He knows that they're coming, and so they, they come to get him. And what would normally happen is they would just gather everybody up. Let's gather them all up. Let's get everybody because we're going to get them in for questioning. And they come to arrest Jesus. And this is what happens in John 18, verse 4. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, said Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Okay, imagine that for just a minute. And again he asks them, uh, who is it you want? Picture that for a moment. I don't know what it looks like for you, but they come out, Jesus sees them coming. He can see them coming down from the city. He can see them coming up into the garden. Here's Judas. He knows where they would often go. He's leading the way. And Jesus goes to meet them, and he asks them, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He establishes, okay, you're just looking for me? And then he says the personal name of God, I am. And with the power and authority of Jesus, these guys, his spoken word makes them fall down. These are tough, hardened, battle people, right? They just fall down. And, and I love it because in that moment, Jesus asks them again. Okay, I just spoke and I knocked you down. And now I'm going to make you answer again. Who, uh, who is it you're looking for? Okay, I don't know what you picture in your head, what happens there. But to me, when I picture it in my head, it sounds something like this. Right? Remember the time. Bam! Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. So he asked him a second time. And I don't know what it looks like for you. I love that Jesus goes from being afraid and that fear is all consuming and the security that he's clinging to. He's now submitted himself and that has been removed. It's almost like that, that stone of fear has been rolled away. And now he has purpose and confidence as he walks into this next phase. And his power and authority shows through. He has mastered his emotions. And he says, I am the personal name of God. And the soldiers fall down. By the way, people who say Jesus never said that he was God simply don't understand the languages. They don't understand in a scholarly way exactly what Jesus said. He was saying it right here. In fact, if people wanted to, they could have accused him of blasphemy right then. But the truth is, he is God, so it wasn't even blasphemy. He was just saying what was true. He didn't blaspheme the name of God. He's going, I am. And that's the end of the story. And these guys, the power and authority, cause these men to fall down. Well, they take him captive at that point. Jesus secured freedom for his disciples. 
You just watch. Well, what happened? Normally, of course, they would gather them all up, right? Hey, we're going to gather you all up. Everyone's coming in for questioning. We've got to figure out what's going on. And in fact, we'd like to trump this whole like, thing of all of you, you know, going through and, and preaching this good news of the kingdom of God. We want to squelch it all right now, so we're going to just wrap up all of you. But Jesus says, number one, who are you looking for? And then this happens. Verse 8 of John 18, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. Do you see what he just did? He just secured freedom for the rest of his disciples. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I want you to understand for a moment, the door got open, the door got cracked for everybody to get away. Right then, when Peter took out his sword and he whopped off the ear, I think he was going for the head, but the guy ducked. I mean, if you saw a sword coming from your head, you might duck too. And it just took his ear off, but it literally like chops it off and it falls on the ground. And Jesus says, put that away. What's he committed to? Doing the will of the Father. Shall I not drink in this experience? And then Jesus says something so amazing. He reaches down, he picks up that ear, and he puts it back on Malchus's head, and it's instantly, completely, entirely healed in that moment. Jesus removed the evidence of the event that would have necessitated that Peter would get arrested too. He just took care of it. No harm, no foul, you got no evidence. Never happened, right? Let my buddies go. So they arrest Jesus, and the rest of the disciples scatter in that moment. He literally healed that man's ear. Well, Jesus gets arrested. He gets tried, two different trials that perverted the Jewish legal system in the middle of the night. Then they take him early in the morning, maybe about 6 a.m., before, before Pilate. And Pilate, again, who is a bloodthirsty guy, has no problem crucifying people, again, finds no charge by which to crucify Jesus. But there's this external pressure of the religious leaders over which he is the governor in the land. And he begins to push back against them. However, while he's almost about to let Jesus go, Jesus gives the answer to Pontius Pilate that ensures his ultimate sacrifice. It ensures it. Jesus answered in John 19 verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. In other words, he's saying, it's okay. You're being pressured by them. They're guilty of the greater sin. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And they're saying it in such a way that they're basically accusing Pilate. Pilate, if you let Jesus go, then in fact, you're the traitor. You're the one who's opposed to the throne of Caesar. And he faces this external pressure. And he gives in and allows Jesus to be crucified. So Jesus is whipped, beaten. He is taken out. They take his cross. They carry it out to the area where they're going to crucify him. And when they would crucify people, they would always put up a placard, a sign, 
that would describe what the crime was. It's almost like if your ship was coming into port and if you saw the bodies of pirates hanging there and it would say, this happens to pirates, don't be a pirate, as you're coming into port, it would be that kind of symbol because they would crucify people along the road outside the city where everybody could see. And so if you were a thief, it would say, this guy's a thief. If you were a murderer, it would say, this lady's a murderer. You know, Whatever it was, whoever they were crucifying, it would have a placard that was above them describing their crime. Well, in John 19, verse 19, it says this, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. Listen, God controlled the words that were on the sign above Jesus. In fact, they describe part of Jesus' identity, that he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the king of the Jews. And this so amazing, Jesus was innocent, and where normally there would be a placard condemning the person to death, he, in fact, had no condemnation. It was not on him. The only condemnation he experienced was your sin, my sin, that he took upon himself on the cross. Pilate had it written in three languages so everybody could read it. There was no question. And it embarrassed the religious leaders. And I I love this picture because God is, is now dealing with some religious leaders who really are kind of against God. And then you have the Roman leaders who are really kind of egomaniacs and, and for self. And there's this tension between the two. And it's so interesting to me that God even uses the tension between the two to accomplish his purposes. That Pontius Pilate is not a God follower at all. He lives within a condition that thinks a human is God being Caesar. Caesar didn't come back from the grave. But I love it that God can even use ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. It doesn't matter whether they're saved or lost or religious or non-religious. God's hands are not tied by that kind of thing because he's sovereign. He is in control. Number eight, darkness happens from noon to 3 p.m. And the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, opening the holy of holies. And let me just describe this for you for a moment. Luke 23 verse 44 says this. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And what I want to help you understand is a couple things that happened here. This is written by Luke. Luke is not one of the disciples, not a direct disciple. Luke is a Greek doctor. In fact, when you translate Greek, when I did like in my master's degree, Luke's Stuff is so tough to translate because it's so immensely precise. More of the other disciples or writers in the New Testament gave some generalities, but Greek is super specific. And as a doctor who's an investigative reporter, he's saying, I'm going to find out exactly what happened in that moment, exactly what happened right there. And so he writes that darkness came over the land until three in the afternoon. What he means is, well, how? Was it an eclipse? Well, they knew about eclipses. He would have said, if it was an eclipse, he would have said, an eclipse happened. If a storm clouds came in and it got darker like it is getting darker outside right now, 
If that happened, he would say, oh, clouds came in. And it got darker because of that. No, literally what he says is, the sun stopped shining. And I want you to catch that for a minute. Because the people in Jerusalem for days and weeks and months would talk about the crazy events that happened this day. There was a massive earthquake. The sun stopped shining in the middle of the day from noon to three. I mean, this stuff was incredible what was going on as Jesus was being crucified. This crucifixion would have started about nine in the morning until about three in the afternoon. Those six hours that he's suffering on the cross at about noon, it goes dark. And then the curtain in the temple gets torn from top to bottom. And you need to understand the design of the temple a little bit. It would be like that in the temple there were common areas, then there were areas for priests to go, and then there was the Holy of Holies. It's where they keep the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the presence of God would dwell. And at that time, the Holy of Holies had a curtain in front of it that was a tapestry that was woven and about four inches thick. Okay? And the high priest could only go in that room once a year. I mean, that was a great day. That was a highly intense day in his life. And I'm sure there was some fear about it. In fact, they would tie a rope around his ankle so if the guy died in there, they'd just pull him out. They put bells on him. They'd, oh, we, we still hear him moving around. But then if he didn't come out at the end of the day, no one's going in to get him because he'll die. And so they would just pull him out with a rope. And so the, it, the high priest could only go in there once. And what happened when Jesus died, when God to, sent Jesus in the flesh as God to take on the sins of the world, God said, your access to me now does not have to go through a priest. It doesn't have to go through anybody else. You, the common person, everyday people like you and me, have direct access to God. That temple, he said, my presence is available to anybody. And he tore that thing from the top to the bottom. Unbelievable. These events are just mind-shattering for those who would have been eyewitnesses to them. The failure of the sun to shine in the middle of the day just pictures that everything is out of control. The normal order of creation has gone awry. This is no ordinary death. These are no ordinary events. We can call on the name of the Lord. Number nine on your outline, Jesus entrusted his mom to John the disciple. So here's Jesus, the son of man, this, this guy who he didn't have a house, he didn't have any property, he had nothing, but while he's hanging on the cross, still completes what he has. It's almost his living trust. While he's on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother there. Can you imagine? There's your mom. And as the firstborn son, he was born of a virgin. She's right there. And as he's there and looking down, he says, someone's got to take care of my mom. And so we find out in John 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, John refers to himself as that, the beloved disciple. They were like best buds. So when he saw the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus, he's carrying the weight of the world, the sins of the world on himself. But while he's there, he says, I, I need to care for my mother and her future because I know my time here is short and my resurrected days are short beyond this until he returns to the Father. Jesus controlled the events, even of his family responsibilities on the cross. Number 10, Jesus decided when to give up his spirit. He's being crucified, or they, they crucified him. He's on the cross, he's being crucified, but he decides the moment he will die. Not, they're not going to decide the moment he will die. Oh, they would do that with other people. 
If you were on the cross too long, if there was a festival coming like there was here, they knew all these crucifixions, Jesus, the thief on either side of him, those three guys, they got to be dead by sundown because the festival's coming and we're not having dead bodies the weekend of the festival, okay? So what they would do is they would come up if you were on the cross and you were suffering too long and the way that you die on a cross is that you asphyxiate you can't breathe with the weight of your own body and your shoulders dislocated pulling down on yourself the weight and your feet are stacked one on top of another and there's a nail through your feet and the only way that you can breathe as painful as it is to push up on that nail and then go back down and when you can't do that for too long then you die but if you don't if you fight it and you're dying over those hours it's a painful horrible, torturous way to die. But if you still remain alive and Jesus had been so beaten and whipped and scourged beforehand, he hung on for six hours. I don't even know how. But the two thieves on either side of him were there. And so what the Roman soldiers would do, they come on and go, well, the way we fix this is we just break their legs. And then you can't push up anymore. So you die pretty quick. And that's what happened to them. But when they came to Jesus, they're ready to break his legs but they stick a spear in his side and what comes out is water separated from blood and they say that's the mark of death, that he's already expired. Well, we find this out. Jesus decided when to give up his spirit. He's on the cross in Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. They crucified him, but Jesus controlled the moment of his death. In fact, uh, the scriptures were clear that none of the bones of the Messiah, none of his bones would be broken. And Jesus controlled the moment of his death so that his legs wouldn't even be broken. In fact, if somebody came to you and said, hey, guess what, guess what? Look what I found. And they opened a suitcase. The bones of Jesus. You could x-ray those, and if any of them are cracked or broken, you know, oh, it's a sham. You're never going to find the bones of Jesus. Why? Because he rose again. And anyone who proclaims to say, hey, we got the bones of Jesus, you'll realize none of them have ever been broken. It's prophecy in that time. And so about roughly 3 p.m., Jesus gives up his spirit and he dies. And then the reason we're here today, number 11, is that Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, let me read the words to you from the scriptures. They won't be on the screen, but will you just put yourself in that place for a moment as we read this? And I'm in Matthew 28 in the NIV version. It says, after the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord to come down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Isn't that awesome? What a great picture, right? His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, he is risen from the dead, is going ahead of you into Galilee, and you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. They ran to tell his disciples, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, and they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee, where they will see me. Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, the scriptures are not just the only evidence of this. Contemporary historians in that era, like Josephus, 
clearly describe the resurrection, the crazy events of that time, and of the evidence that Christ rose from the dead. And Jesus then starts to appear to people. And it's not just a few handful of people here and there. At one time, he appeared to over 500 people. My dad was an attorney before he died, and he just said, you know how easy it would be to put something through if you got 500 witnesses or something? He goes, I live in a world of depositions, and he said, she said, they said, they promised. And he goes, listen, you got 500 witnesses? It's a shoe-in. Jesus appeared before many, many people. Scholars who actually study the evidence for the resurrection don't deny that the resurrection happened. They may have ideas about how it happened, but they don't deny that it happened. Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God. God is sovereign. God is in control of my life, of your life, of Jesus' life. Initially, most of the disciples, like you and I would, viewed it as hopeless, right? Jesus is dead, like this guy who's so powerful. I thought even we were going to get away in the garden, but he's been arrested, and it just got worse and worse. He got arrested. He got beaten. He's crucified. All the good that was in Jesus is gone. And sometimes, like the disciples, you and I, at first, all we see is the pain. God, how can you be in control? All I'm experiencing is pain. I'm afraid, and now I'm going to try and control my life and control what I'm doing because I'm afraid that my security is shaken. Where is God when awful things happen? Sometimes we blame God, but the scriptures are clear that the evil one has control over the world until Jesus' return. So there's going to be evil here. The same one who entered Judas to betray Jesus is the same one who wants to convince you to betray Jesus. He wants to throw out fear in your life, security in your life, make you disbelieve. Could it be that you and I initially only see the painful? Could it be that you and I, if we're being honest with ourselves, really expect God to create heaven on earth for us when earth is not heaven? It's not. But we want our experience. God, if you really love me, you'd make it like a utopia here. Well, what world are you living in? You're living in the human race, aren't you? We all want that. But God says it's not in this life. There so often is a death before there's a resurrection. There's the painful before there's the rejoicing. That's the way life works. There's one out of one people die. You're not going to get around that evidence. You're not going to get around that statistic. Jesus says there's a death before there's a resurrection. When everything seemed out of control and your world is torn apart, God is still in control. Remember, again, control is driven by fear. And the cause root of fear is, again, the loss of security. Control is driven by fear. But why are we afraid? We're afraid that we're losing security. So the real issue is how can you be assured that God is good when so much in life seems out of control? Listen, some of you, You've created a stone of fear and a stone of unbelief, and you've rolled that in front of you. But I gotta tell you, that stone you've rolled that you think is protecting you, that you can hide behind, it's a hollow stone. It doesn't work, it won't protect you. Again, one out of one people die. The scriptures say that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what's gonna happen. Everyone, everyone has a different opinion about Jesus' identity. Oh, he's not king of kings, lord of lords. No, the scriptures are clear that everyone in earth, under the earth, they will all bow and declare with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. 
So I want to say, do you want to hug your stone of fear? Or do you want to let God help you roll that away as you put your faith in what Jesus did out of his lavish love for you on the cross? Such good news. Listen, Jesus stretched out his hands. He took our pain. He took our condemnation. He basically said, I'm going to take all the shame and guilt and everything of your sin and my sin upon myself on the cross. And I'm going to satisfy God's righteous, pure, holy rage against evil and sin. I'm going to satisfy that. And when you put your faith and trust in what I did willingly on the cross for you, then I will give you new life spiritually. I will forgive you of your sins. I will wash you clean. And you will be made new. You will come spiritually alive. And the day you die, you will be in my presence in heaven forever. Listen, Jesus conquered death and offers us the assurance that beyond the earthly life, which by the way, we're going to lose the earthly life, right? We are. It's time to roll that stone of unbelief away. Listen, you gain freedom when you give up control to the one who can speak his name and soldiers fall down. To the one who can turn the sun dark and oh, by the way, turn it back on again in the middle of the day. He's the one who can offer forgiveness for your worst moments. You gain freedom when you give yourself to the one who offers heaven beyond the chaos that is this world. You will experience freedom to the one who can roll the stone away, to the one who can rise from the dead to the king of kings the lord of lords jesus christ perhaps you've never understood that jesus is the only way for your sins to be forgiven and have them washed away with your heads bowed your eyes closed this is just so you're only thinking about yourself i don't want you to distract the people around you i want you just for a moment to think about yourself have you put your faith and trust in jesus christ have you received him and his forgiveness of what he did on the cross It's time to roll that fear away. It's time to roll hollow of security away. And if that's you today, you're saying, Jesus, I want to be washed clean. I want my sins forgiven. You might be up in the loft. You might be down there on the floor. But it is no accident that you're here today. And right now, if you'd like to receive Jesus as Lord, you do it by talking to him. The veil has been torn. You have direct access to talk to God. And you might say something like this. You can repeat this right after me. Jesus, today I give you me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you were God. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin and wash me as white as snow. Make me a new creation on the inside because today I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.